0: I'm Barbara Sibbald, CMAJ's Editor of Humanities. Today, we're talking with Donna Dickinson, Emeritus Professor of Medical Ethics and Humanities at the University of London. She also holds honorary positions at the Helix Centre, University of Oxford, and the Centre for Ethics in Medicine at the University of Bristol. Professor Dickinson has written a Medicine and Society essay for CMAJ. We reach Professor Dickinson in Oxford. Thank you for joining us, Professor Dickinson. it's a pleasure. Thank you. Your latest book is called Me Medicine versus We Medicine. Could you tell our listeners what you mean by this? Yes, it's a book about personalized medicine,
1: and that is um, interpreted in various different ways, but it's something that's very big in medicine at the moment and affects both doctors and patients. And that is the idea that rather than having what's sometimes called one-size-fits-all treatments, for example, in cancer care, Uh, chemotherapy that is basically the same for everyone with a particular cancer, uh, that you would have genetically personalized treatments. And that's why I call it me medicine, because it is very much, the idea is that it would be individualized. Now, that has many different aspects, and I've concentrated so far in our talk on the aspect to do with what's sometimes called pharmacogenomics or pharmacogenetics, that is, drug treatments that are tailored to either the genome of the individual patient or the genome of the cancer. They're two separate issues. But they both could be personalized. There's other kinds of personalized medicine. So there's also what is sometimes called retail genetic testing or direct-to-consumer genetic testing. And that is when you send in a small swab of your DNA, so like a cheek swab, for example, uh, or a spit sample, something like that, and you get back a partial analysis, it is only partial, of some of the diseases or predispositions to disease that you might, you might have on the basis of that genetic readout. And those are available commercially. Um, and also, of course, there are you know large whole genome scans that are also available at a higher price. And then I also look in the book at other things that I regard as personalized medicine. So I look at private umbilical cord blood banking, which is based on the the idea, uh, which is actually not entirely borne out in the evidence at all, that you could bank a portion of the cord blood when a baby is born, and that you could develop a sort of personal spare parts kit for the baby in future. And then finally, I look at enhancement techniques, so neurocognitive enhancement, for example. And I think what ties all of those interesting developments together They're all very much in the news, and I think what ties them all together is that they are about me in a sense, not necessarily an adverse sense. That is, they're all personalized. They're all individualized. Now, when you think about what has actually given us the greatest increase in lifespan over the the past hundred years or so, it's actually been something that I call we medicine, and I contrast it to, to me medicine. That is, it's been things like vaccination campaigns or uh, public sanitation campaigns. And these have been population-based. They've been for the population as a whole. And that has, in a sense, been a strength because rich and poor alike were vulnerable to epidemics, for example, like cholera. And by targeting rich and poor alike, we medicine, the traditional public health kind of medicine, actually has achieved quite remarkable things. So what I'm asking in the book is, well which way do we want to go now? Because the advocates of me medicine are saying this is a revolution and this will really change, you know, our our outlook, our medical outlook. And they're saying, you know, you really have to go with this. But do we? I'm I'm just asking the question and also trying to raise some of the ethical issues that come out.
0: In your uh, essay, your article for CMHA, you begin by talking about uh, whether consumers are the best judges of their own clinical care using the 23 and Me dispute with the FDA. Um, this is about consumer genetic testing based on those little cheap swabs, I guess, that you were mentioning. Can you tell us a bit about that dispute and its importance to this debate? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, as I said just now, one aspect
1: of Personalized medicine or me medicine is retail genetics tests. And the reason that they are linked to, for example, pharmacogenetics, what I began by talking about, is that they're sometimes seen as sort of the entry point. So that uh, if an individual is really interested in knowing more about his or her genetic makeup and how that could predispose them to certain conditions or diseases, then Maybe a starting point might be one of these consumer genetics tests. Now, there are many different companies, and I'm not singling out 23andMe. The only reason that it's particularly relevant is that the FDA, after four or five years of what the FDA said was trying to negotiate with the company, did actually close down the company's retail genetics testing arm, or rather, after a period of time, it allowed them to reopen but for a much more limited set of conditions. And the FDA's argument was that because all the genetics companies, I'm not singling out 23andMe, all of the personal genetics companies can only test for what's called a limited for a limited number of what are called SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. And these are points where the genetic makeup of individuals differs by one base pair. So You get a partial readout and the FDA argument was that people were making big medical decisions on the basis of a partial readout and they really needed more comprehensive information. So when that happened, the postbag from 23andMe was mixed. Some people said, yeah, OK, we would actually like to know more information. And others said, well, actually, it's not the FDA's business, it's our business. We are the consumers. And we are the best judges of the information. Now, I think this cuts two ways. You could say an informed consumer would have actually taken the FDA line and would have said, fine, it's ultimately my decision, but I would like more information. And that's what the FDA is saying they want 23andMe to give. Okay, fine. Or you could take the line that it's regulation, unnecessary regulation, and that consumers are the best judges of their own interests. And I think this is very interesting in relation to me medicine because because of the me bit. So you could say that, yes, the new kind of personalised medicine does encourage a kind of consumerism and you know you could argue that one both ways as I've just tried to do. Or you could say, well, actually, that's a very narrow construction of me. Personalized medicine is actually not just about consumers. But about trying to make sure that patients in general, and that's not just retail genetics tests, but, you know, for example, patients in um, public health care settings as well, are getting treatments that are tailored more to their own individual
0: genome, or as I said at the very beginning, the genome of, of the cancer in oncology cases. When you're talking about me medicine versus we medicine, you're talking about the we medicine being a public health aspect of medicine. Are you saying then that the we medicine should be available to everybody in the same way maybe that the public health is?
1: Yes, that's a good question. And obviously, that will be different in different healthcare systems. So here in the UK, and there in Canada, you've answered it in a different way, you know, from the US. What I'm suggesting is that in a world of limited resources, and I'm accepting that we are going to be in a world with pressures towards austerity, we can argue about whether we should succumb to those pressures or not, but there are going to be resource constraints and there are going to be pressures on public healthcare systems. So in all three different types of system, you know, your NHS one, which is free at source one, your insurance based one, and the US more private one, you are going to be facing similar pressures, but just in different guises. So I think we do actually Need to make some choices. It would be nice to be able to have both the personalized medicine, the me medicine, and the we medicine. But I think we might have to make some balancing judgments. And what has sometimes been said is that, well, we won't need to make those judgments because me medicine is actually more efficient. That is, let's say, rather than giving every patient with a particular form of cancer the same drug we tailor the drug so that only the individuals who are most likely to respond are going to get it. Now, there's two problems with that. It sounds on the face of it as if that's actually going to square the circle and, you know, that will enable us to afford both we medicine and me medicine and will mean that me medicine doesn't, you know, we don't have to choose one way or the other because we'll be saving money. That's the way it looks. Two problems. One is that many of the personalised Drugs, particularly in, in cancer care, are extremely expensive. And here in the UK, we have a limit of £30,000 per quality, quality adjusted life year or £50,000 in cases of um, terminal illness. And many of these cost more like 200 or £300,000. So they're above our limit, considerably above our limit. And the other problem is that we know from some recent studies, which I do cover in my article that there's actually quite a high rate of false positives with some of the knee medicine studies, with some of the pharmacogenetic studies. And that might mean that you're not going to be eliminating all of the people who won't benefit from one of these expensive treatments. In fact, in in one study, it looked like about two-thirds of those identified as likely to respond were actually false positives. So that means that you're spending money on them. So back to your initial question then about pressures on public health systems we have these new drugs many of which are extremely effective i don't want to deny the effectiveness of many of these new oncology drugs but we still will face cost issues i think that's that's hard to contradict and we then will have to decide do we want to put money into things like vaccination programs which are extremely cost effective or the development of new vaccines Um, both in the first and in the third world. I mean, recently, for example, Ebola has been, it's still not entirely eradicated, Uh, but it does seem that there is some progress at last after 30 years after the disease was first identified um, towards a vaccine. So do we want to put money into that or do we want to put it into the cancer drugs? I think we're going to have to make some choices.
0: Yeah, they're going to be hard choices. Speaking of false positives, your article in the book both explore whether the science of personalized medicine is really as far advanced as proponents claim. Do you think it truly is a revolution? The simple answer is no, I don't.
1: <laughs> and I think there is um, there are certainly revolutionary aspects of it. And if it were as far advanced as its proponents claim then perhaps it would be able to claim that it was a revolution. But what I try to do in the book is to balance the scales a bit because there are a number of books out there which are, I think, rather uncritically in favor of new medicine as being an unqualified success. And, you know, we live in an age of evidence-based medicine, rightly so. And therefore, we really want to know whether the evidence is there support that assertion. So I've looked particularly in the pharmacogenomics chapter, but also in the uh, umbilical cord blood banking chapter and in the enhancement chapter and in the retail genetics chapter at the evidence base for and against with all of these developments. And I found that it's strongest in pharmacogenetics, but even there it is not certainly as far advanced as some of the more story eyed proponents claim. In some other areas, um, for example, in private umbilical cord blood banking, uh, I was actually on the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists' Ethics Committee for many years, so I did have sight of evidence, which which was submitted to the UK Royal College about private umbilical cord blood banking, and these are also in the public domain. It's pretty clear that the evidence base is against it, and that is for several reasons. One is that if you're banking the baby's blood, and the baby actually has something like a genetic, let's say a genetic leukemia that's present at birth. The last thing you want to do is transfuse more of the baby's blood to the baby. It would be more effective to transfuse publicly banked blood uh, from another child. And we do have such public cord blood banks. And the evidence in their favor is actually stronger than the private. So what I've tried to do throughout is... Just to provide an objective, balanced assessment. I'm not anti-me medicine. I'm not necessarily pro-we medicine. But it's just that the literature so far, I think, has been quite uncritically pro. And I think it's really important that people can make up their own minds
0: about the evidence base. Why do you think there's such a push for this type of medicine, the me medicine?
1: Yes, that is the obvious question, isn't it? If the science alone doesn't explain the push. What does? And what I try to do in the book is to produce some possible explanations and four seem to come out most strongly. One is the idea that people are feeling a sense of threat that either you know, from shortages of medical care or from epidemics or other disease patterns, that there is a sort of sense of medical threat. And that this is a response to it. The idea, the bigger claims, the more grandiose claims, the the ideas that we have a revolution, uh, which is particularly effective in cancer care. Well, since many people you know, feel that cancer is, is quite a frightening phenomenon, then this obviously is going to be attractive. And indeed, it would be attractive if you know, it really did work out. The second thing I look at is the way that these claims about a revolution are couched. And they are very typically couched in terms of you taking charge of your own health care, which is fine. I have nothing against that. I've just come back from the gym myself. (laughs) So I think part of what's going on there is, or a possible explanation, is that they're appealing to what is a very powerful current in most of our societies. That is choice and autonomy and patient choice and patient empowerment. And, you know, those are very powerful threads to which most people respond. Um, I also examine the idea that this is really a form of narcissism. And actually, I'm quite skeptical about that. But it does look from some of the initial claims, it does look a bit as if this is part of what's sometimes been called the epidemic of narcissism in our society. I actually think this is quite an offensive explanation, and I'm dismissive of it. I think it's offensive to say that cancer patients who are interested in pharmacogenomics are being narcissistic, (laughs) or mothers who donate the baby's cord blood, which involves an additional procedure for themselves, are being narcissistic. I I think that's pretty offensive. Um, And then finally, I look at some of the commercial backers of these different forms of personalized medicine, and I look at that in some detail. And I I do come to the conclusion that commercial imperatives do explain quite a bit of what's going on, Uh, and in particular, the way in which pharmaceutical companies used to be able to depend on profits from blockbuster drugs, so drugs that, uh, like Prozac um, or Warfarin, drugs that were intended for a very wide population and sold well for a wide range of patients. The patents on many of those drugs are expiring or have already expired. And it's it's quite clear, I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. The industry, you know, it's profit-making. It has to have a business strategy. And if you look at the business strategy documents, you do quite often find that they are interested in the more personalized market. And that helps to explain, looking at it from their point of view, Because the personalized market is going to be smaller, that is, the drugs, each individual drug will cater for more of a niche market. You simply won't have the big blockbuster drugs anymore. And therefore, the pricing would have to be higher because of supply and demand. And whether it has to be as high as some of the individual prices, I don't know. That's not for me to say. But those four possible explanations, I think, then could also have a part to play and that is threat, narcissism, commercial pressures, and this rhetoric of choice and autonomy.
0: That's fascinating. It's just been wonderful having uh, someone talk to us about the other side of personalized medicine. We thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Professor Donna Dickinson, Emeritus Professor of Medical Ethics and Humanities at the University of London. Please visit CMAJ.ca to read her Medicine and Society Humanities essay. I'm Barbara Sibyl, CMAJ's Editor of Humanities. Thank you for listening.